Well, I want to get into the message because I do have quite a bit to cover, but not to scare you. I know I talk fast sometimes, so I'm going to try to slow down. Because today, uh, God's given me really kind of a reflection back on three different messages I've preached in the past. Only I found parts of them all contained in a message I listened to and read from John MacArthur. Um, but what I've done is I've, I've drawn out some of the key points uh, from his message that, um, that are kind of reiterating things we've already learned. Some of them recent, some of them more in the past. But today we're going to focus on the idea of the Messiah. And we all know that Jesus is the Messiah, but do we know what that means? I preached not long ago where we put Jesus on trial. I believe it might have been a Wednesday night, but it was, it was where we put Jesus on trial uh, to, pr- to offer the proof that he was a son of God. And we're going to do a little bit of that again today from a little bit of a different aspect. Specifically, we're going to look at the person and ministry of the Messiah in that I think is one of the most fascinating and sort of uh, overview perspectives that will help us understand the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, you can look at other historical books than the Bible to prove that Jesus existed. But doing that doesn't prove his deity. And so today, putting on a trial, we're going to, to again, and this isn't for my benefit because I know Jesus lives, I know he's in my heart, but there may be some today that you still have him on trial in your heart. So we're focused on the idea of the Messiah as him, as deity, as the Christ. If you want to turn with me to the book of John chapter Two, that's where we'll mainly focus. I will give you some background to that, and so I'll bounce around a little bit in John, but um, mainly you want to be in John chapter 2. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will be in John chapter 2. I want to remind you also that John has written this gospel for one purpose, really. These uh, have been written, this gospel has been written, he says, the word of, the, of this gospel that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. So John makes that statement uh, earlier on, and John writes to give evidence for the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is a Messiah and is the Son of God. And he also, that you might believe that, and because of that belief, have eternal life. So he has an evangelistic purpose, and he has... um, He gives an apologetic purpose, in other words, to give evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, but also to evangelize so that you'll believe and have eternal life from that. So the whole purpose of this gospel is just to line up supporting proofs for the deity of Jesus Christ. The case for Christ, which is the title of today's message, the case for Christ. This is the proofs that John gives uh, to prove that he's a Christ. So... The first chapter of John, if we were to look through the first 18 verses, uh, is the testimony of John the Apostle himself. In the opening 18 verses that, uh, that some call the prologue, John gives his own testimony that the Word, who is Jesus Christ, is God, with God, created everything, is the light, is a life, and all of those things are part of that, that he's the Word. In other words, in verse 14 where it says, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us uh, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is John's testimony to proclaim the deity of Christ. So in the opening 18 verses, it's the testimony, the inspired testimony of the Apostle John concerning the fact that Jesus 
is the creator God himself and yet distinct from God. And then God being yet being with God. So there's some denominations that teach that really when there's reference to God and his son, it's really just one. And we're just hearing him talk in different uh, characteristics of himself. But we believe in something that's really hard to explain, but the Trinity where God has a son, Jesus, and they are separate but in the same Godhead. So then starting in verse 19, we have the testimony of the greatest of all Old Testament prophets. The greatest man who ever lived up until this time, John the Baptist, the great and the last Old Testament prophet, and the first preacher of Jesus Christ. And he affirms that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. So we first have John, the Apostle John's testimony as to the deity of Christ. Now we have John the Baptist's testimony as a, him as the deity of Christ. And then we have Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, and Andrew who are Old Testament believers who were true worshipers of God. These were ones who were following the teachings of John the Baptist, but then John the Baptist comes to a point where when Jesus is there and he's recognized as Messiah, John turns them away from him to point to Jesus. So he's handing off the disciples, basically. So then the verse chapter is, so we said the verse chapter is verbal testimony from John the Apostle, John the Baptist, and then we also have the five followers of John the Baptist who give verbal testimony. Now follow with me because we then have later all that verbal testimony that Jesus is God, God is a light, he is a life, he's God in human flesh, is the Lamb of God, is the Messiah, is the one spoken of in the Old Testament, and then also is the Son of God and the King of Israel. And all of those confessions are made in that first chapter. And now we come to chapter 2. And we move from verbal testimony to testimony by the words of Je the works of Jesus. So chapter one is the verbal of those following him, and then when chapter two comes in, this is where Jesus' ministry starts and his works, and in this first, uh, first of the second chapter, his first miracle begins to proclaim him as deity, as God's son. And John is going to alternate now and and go through his gospel between wor the words of Christ and the works of Christ. And he's going to have us look at the statements Jesus made that indicate his deity. Um, now, John, now in John's book, he gives us eight signs, eight miracles that Jesus did that are signs pointing to his deity. And here they are. He turns water into wine in chapter 2. He heals a dying man in chapter 4. He cures a paralyzed man in chapter 5. He creates food for thousands of people in chapter 6. He walks on water at the end of chapter 6. He gives sight to the blind in chapter 9. He raises a man that had been dead for days in chapter 11. He creates a meal in chapter 21 that ends up breakfast for his disciples. And then he cum uh, the accumulating miracle beyond the eight that I just mentioned is Jesus raises himself from the dead. So those are the miracles and signs that John records. And I would just remind you that in chapter 20, verse 30, it says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So I don't want you to think that those eight that were mentioned in his raising from the dead, that that's it. That's the totality. 
That's just the ones that John uses for the case for Christ that's before us. And then if in chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse in the Gospel of John, John writes this, listen to this. There were also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So in other words, the whole of this world could not contain enough books to write all that Jesus did when it comes to his miraculous things. So we get the idea that what we read in the Bible is the totality of what Jesus did in front of the disciples, when really it's just a glimpse. He's literally saying there's not enough books in the world to write down everything Jesus did. So they might offer a little disappointment to you. You, you might have missed out on some pretty good stuff. I guess we'll have to wait till heaven to know. But Jesus did so many signs and so many miracles, he says, the books of the world wouldn't be able to contain the details of them. He goes on many other things. In chapter 1, verse 14, the word, the divine word, the eternal word, became flesh and manifested his divine glory. So that's John's point. That's what he's driving at. When I was at Walmart corporate office, I took this class uh, um, called, uh, see, that's how much I learned. I can't remember. <laughs> Dale Carnegie. And in Dale Carnegie, um, they teach you that when you're speaking, you should have one action one result. So in other words, I'm going to give you one thing you need to do today and one result. So that's what John's doing. One point. He shows his glory as God through these signs. He's saying Jesus shows his deity through these signs. Now as we come into chapter 2, it also, and also chapter 2, they have the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So in other words, Jesus hasn't done a whole lot recorded about ministry to this point. This is where it starts. When we talk about his ministry to the crowds, his ministry to the people of Israel, and his public ministry goes from chapter 2, verse 1, to the end of chapter 12. And when, if you were to go to the end of chapter 12, that's the end of his public ministry. So then chapters 13 through 17, I just want to give you some background before we get into the meat of this. Chapters 13 through 17 is his private ministry in the upper room to the apostles, and that's made right before his death and resurrection which then becomes the subjects of chapters 18 through 21. So the book is then divided into these sections. Here's a little summary for you. Chapter 1, verbal testimony. Chapters 2 through 12, public ministry. Chapters 13 to 17, his private ministry. Chapters 18 to the end is his death, resurrection, post-resurrection appearances. That, and so this helps us locate where we are in the big scheme of things as we're trying to divide this text uh, that John wrote. So now we have a basic overview of John's case for the Christ, um, and it all begins with a supernatural miracle. So I'm going to read to you chapter 2, starting with verse 1, about what the deal is today, what we're, what we're putting on trial here. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. <laughs> now, I don't know how mom, a mom would say this, but she's basically, they have no wine. It's like when I'm driving down the road with Jen, and all of a sudden she's like, Oh, no, look. And I'm like, What? You know, I'm thinking deer in the road, somebody going to hit us. And she's like, Oh, that place just opened up. <laughs> you know, Jesus probably enjoying the wedding, and all of a sudden his mom's like, Hey, there's no wine. It's like, Good grief. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? 
My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I'm going to tell you, we read this through the tone of our culture and how we react to our mothers. And we all know what would happen if you have a good disciplinarian's mom, if you say, woman. But you have to understand there's something different going on here. And a little bit today and more next week, we'll get into that and understand Jesus is not being disrespectful or rude to his mother. And when she says, uh, do whatever he says then, she's not being sarcastic or just flippant and saying, okay, well, if you're going to be that way, do whatever he says. I don't know anything, you know. We just had talk about that the other night, that I guess your frontal lobe that is your decision-making part doesn't develop until the age of 25. I said some may be later than others. But, but Jesus, you know, beginning in his 30s here, so Jesus said to them, fill the, um, oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. So she says, says, do whatever he says. Now there were six stone water pots, pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And that's how that passage ends. So there's no human way to explain Jesus. He has to be God. If you're looking at this account, and if you were to believe it to be true, then there's no explanation for Jesus. He has to be God. If this is all we had, we would know that because he creates wine out of nothing, we already know he's a creator. Because in John 1, 3, it says, nothing was made that he didn't make. Nothing was made without him making it. And he made everything that exists from nothing. So here you have a miracle in which the God slash man creates wine out of nothing. This is evidence that he's divine. And scripture leaves us no other explanation. That is John's mission. John's mission is to leave you no other explanation. And it will mount this explanation, this evidence of this will mount as we move through this book. Now let me just take a break, uh, take uh, a breakdown of this account into four simple features. First of all, the first feature is it's a party. I mean, that's simple. It, it's a wedding party. It's, it, it exceeds all other parties because it's the most important event in the ancient world in the life of the people in the town in that village. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take just a moment to explain to you that a, a little while ago I preached uh, on a Wednesday night in our Revelation series about when Jesus was talking about us as the bridegroom, about the importance of that because culturally that was one of the most important things ever was a marriage. And I talked to you a little bit about how that comes about from the betrothal to the, to the engagement and what happens during that time. But first let's look at what it says. Verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now that identifies this as the most significant and important carefully planned event that happened in ancient family life. But we're told this was the third day. So what does that mean? What significance is that drawing us to the third day? 
Well, see, there are some other events that had happened, and so it's referencing the third day after the previous meeting with Philip and Nathaniel, some of the disciples or the apostles, which was concluded when Philip brought Nathaniel, and Nathaniel said in verse 49 concerning Jesus, After we've examined you, we see you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's what John the Apostle said. That's what John the Baptist says. And now it's going to be proven to us in the miracle that happens at Cana. So his, his ministry is beginning because his deity is now being recognized fully by others who are witnessing um, his, his ministry. So it's the third day after that meeting. What the Bible, what this tells us is that from the time John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God and turned his disciples away from him to follow Jesus, those five men to follow Jesus from that day to this day, everything happens within a week. So you want to talk about a busy week. I mean, they go from John the Baptist is the guy that they're going to as their spiritual leader to he says, now here's the Messiah, what I've been talking about all this time. You're to follow him. They follow Jesus. They go on this journey. And in a very short time, they end up at this wedding. They've gone from being across the Jordan and Judah all the way back to Galilee to the village of Cana, which is about nine miles on foot. The ruins of it are about nine miles north of Nazareth. And all this happens in a very power-packed week. So Jesus is being declared, these men being called to follow him, and they do so and end up in the town of Cana. Uh, as we uh, would remember, we're talking about Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and John. And incidentally, Nathaniel's hometown is Cana, according to John 21.2. So Nathaniel's really going back to his hometown. And this is a very small place. For example, Nazareth, uh, in the highest numbers we read about their uh, populace, would be 500 people. And so Nazareth is nine miles from Cana, and Cana is a lot smaller, maybe only 12 or more folks. So this is kind of like Toadsuck, Arkansas, or places like that, where if you're going over 30 miles an hour and you blow past the only stop sign town, you miss the whole town. It's very small. So Cana is a village, I said, nine miles away. But it's this sort of gathering place for agricultural folks. I grew up in Nebraska, a town about 6,000 people until sixth grade. And it, I went down to local A&W, and you go in there and get your frosty mug out of the, the freezer to go get your root beer back in the day, and you're amongst all these farmers. It was just the gathering place of the farmers. And obviously, people from Nazareth would know those people because they lived nearby. How many know in a small town, everybody knows everybody, and everybody's in everybody's business? So they farmed together. The people in the outlying areas would come to Nazareth when they needed things that would only be gathered in Nazareth. You know, it's like uh, living in Centerton and, you know, the next biggest place we go is Bentonville because that's where the super center is. And it would also be true that if, the, if a town of Nazareth has 500 or less people, um, there's not much that gets past them that they don't know about. They've been there for generations. They are, aren't mobile. They're marrying each other's kids. There's not a whole lot of options for marriage, so uh, a lot of people are related. And so we're not surprised that Nathaniel would be there because that's his village. We're also not surprised that Mary would be there because she had lived in Nazareth for so long and everybody would have known her as well. And we're also not surprised that the rest of the folks from Galilee, um, the other men who came there with Jesus, would also be there. So surely they would know these people at this wedding as well. 
So on the third day, this wedding in Cana of Galilee, and uh, it's a very significant experience with not much going on in that town. A wedding is like the main thing. And, um, you know, the fact that our Lord is there uh, for his first miracle at the wedding emphasizes the sanctity of that covenant. So in other words, weddings matter. Um, public covenants matter. The ceremony itself really matters to God, even. It always has. People who are not married and just live together, they are, people who just live together are not married. People who are married um, through a public covenant before God and before people are married. And that's a condition of life. It's not something man created, so man doesn't really have a say in what marriage is. It's not an inv- invention of man. It, it was biblical, and that's where man got the idea from for marriage. So we don't really have a say in that. And throughout history, if you watch any culture that begins to uh, diminish the sanctity of marriage, they don't honor what marriage was intended to be, then destruction and death and all kinds of calamity comes, and many times, thread by thread, that culture is undone and devastated. You can even look at cultures where you say, well, I know some cultures where the weddings are a big thing, and in fact, arranged marriages, and it's a big cultural thing. But you know what? In those cultures, sometimes there's child weddings, and there's all kinds of multiple wives and different things, and they're not honoring the sanctity of marriage like the Bible spells it out for us, and so they have turmoil in their culture too. And so you can see in the United States too, as we begin to diminish and, and divorce rates went up, and, and because of our culture and all that, we just, we, we just lost the ability to, to maintain those marriage covenants. Um, not that we lost the ability, but we've, we've lost the um, commitment to that. And so our culture itself is unwinding and, and being pulled apart thread by thread. So it's the highest and noblest and best of all human relationships. No other human relationship is as wonderful as marriage. Although scripture talks about it's fine to be single if you can, but most people will burn in lust if they don't. So get married is what the Bible says. Um, and also uh, it's, it's talked about and it's referred to as the grace of life. Okay, now this gets a little tricky for some if you don't understand the terminology of what's happening here because some uh, denominations, for instance, the Catholic Church has uh, put marriage up there with like communion or any sacrament because Jesus and Mary were there. They put importance on it as if it has salvation grace. Now there's a difference. Common grace, common grace can be enjoyed by believers and unbelievers alike. And I'm not talking about the kind of grace where you're an unbeliever you become a believer, so you receive grace. That's salvation. That's grace, uh, the grace that comes with salvation. But there's other examples like, um, you know, the scripture says uh, that it rains on the just and the unjust. In other words, when I get cooled off by a cool rain shower, I could be standing next to the worst of sinners, right? And we both enjoy that, whether he's a believer or not. That's a uh, grace of life. The sunset, good sleep, health, good meal, falling in love, those things can all be enjoyed by the unbeliever. But salvation, the grace that comes by salvation, that saving grace, is not something you can enjoy unless they, it's more conditional, unless they accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Become a slave to Christ is what it talks about. But marriage is the best gift that God can give uh, to humanity in general without regard to whether they know him at all. So, again, any society honors uh, marriage. Uh, it, it's blessed. Anyone that uh, defies it or um, that doesn't honor marriage, it comes apart. 
And so the Roman Catholic Church, they, they put it up there with, uh, that you get some type of salvation through that. It's in their theology, um, but we don't adhere to that because one thing that's noticed is the interaction between Jesus. They actually use this passage for that. That's where they base it off of, but they don't look closely at the interaction between Jesus and Mary. Um, in fact, they believe that you ask for things from Jesus through Mary because of this interaction. So it's kind of a different how they see that. But marriage is to be ordained by God, and it's a universal relation, common grace, that's at the top of all common graces in the benefits that it provides. So Jesus went to a wedding, and the mother of Jesus was there, and not surprising again how many generations of her family had lived in the little town of Nazareth, a few hundred people. I mean, keep in mind, they know Mary had this baby and that it wasn't Joseph's. And apparently she's not shunned. So there's people who believe in Mary and what happened. And, you know, um, so this is a woman who is loved. She's a beloved woman, wonderful woman. Um, She probably had some role to play in the wedding as to serve. Um, And again, this is a major event going on. So the song, the, some writers say that usually they would start this wedding in the middle of the week and go on for many days. So any of you that re- planned your wedding all for one day for a few hours and you get done, you're like, whew, I'm glad that's done, right? The relatives, that's great. Everybody's here, joyous occasion now. We're ready for the honeymoon and y'all go home, right? Can you imagine if it went on for a week and you had to worry about the events of the week and the food and the planning and all that? Sometimes they'd start early in the week and go all week as long as seven days. When people came to this celebration, they came because there had been a betrothal and engagement period. About a year earlier, the couple had been engaged. Now, if you'll remember from that message I preached on Wednesday night, culturally what the, the young man had to do once he proposed is now he had a year timeline he had to build a house for her and him. He had to provo- prove that he could provide for her. And so either his extension off of her uh, off of father's house or built his own house, but he's out there, you know, hammering away for a year. People pass by and like, oh, look at Tim. He loves her, doesn't he? Look at that. He's sweating. He's working away. So that's what he's doing. She's waiting with the bridegrooms, and, and at a moment's notice, she has to be ready to go to the wedding because she doesn't know when the house is going to be finished, and the father decides when the house is ready. So... It's a legal binding covenant contract that could only be broken by divorce, but marriage wasn't consummated uh, until the end of this party. So what was going on all that year? Well, like I said, he's building the house. And and so we know in small towns, if there's a festival, they have one big festival a year, then the whole town comes out for it, right? Parades in the small town, Centerton Days here. It's a big deal. Well, there, a wedding was the biggest thing that could have happened all year. So everybody's going to go. Everybody's talking about it and anticipating it. And Jesus is there as well with, five, with the five, and they are in celebration. And I want to just stop here and say this, that there's something really beautiful about this because he has 30 years in Nazareth in this little town. Everybody knows him, a few hundred people. And he's about to step out into the world, if you will, 30 years of absolute obscurity in private life, and now he's going to begin public ministry. And the bridge from his private life to his public ministry is a miracle for his family and his friends. So do you see that? This didn't happen in Judea. This happened for his family and his friends in Nazareth. So if you're Mary and you get this thrown at you, you're going to birth the Son of God, 
the Savior for all men, and he's going to do all these wonderful things for everybody. I think it's just a little kickback from God that the first miracle and this happened in the hometown, right? That's my boy, right? That's my boy, Jesus, Savior of everybody, you know? <laughs> Never wrong. Always has the best job, you know? Um, but we're the first ones... Uh, to recognize that he had never, uh, they were the first ones to recognize he had, where that he had never demonstrated this kind of power before, that he was the creator God. It's a family and friends miracle which makes the event uh, more bizarre of the fact that when he came back to Nazareth a few months later in Luke 4, he preached a sermon at the synagogue where they all went to, where they all knew each other, and he basically proclaims at that point that he's the son of God four months later after this miracle. And they take up stones and want to kill him. The very people that saw him turn this water into wine, they later want to kill him when he actually makes a proclamation himself, not by a work, but by his own testimony that he is the son of God. So how strange, how hard-hearted is that? So he starts his miracle ministry with friends and family, and by the way, Joseph isn't mentioned, and I would assume that, that, that Joseph was dead because he must have died during those silent years. There were people who knew Joseph and Mary, and John 6.42 says, there were people who knew his parents, they knew Joseph and Mary, but Joseph was very likely dead because we see a couple interactions, and this is one of them where uh, he's not mentioned there. Uh, Mary's looking to him. In that culture, they look to the oldest son if they're a widow. She's mentioned as a widow later. Um, he commi he um, commits his mother Mary uh, into the care of John the Apostle at his death when Jesus is being crucified. He, he tells, basically, John to take care of Mary. So we see that he had that authority because the father was not living, or her husband was not living. So... Um, this wedding, it's one of the greatest occasions. Everybody knows it's coming, and they run out of wine. Why is this significant? This interaction between Jesus and Mary. And we're going to wrap it up here because I want to get more into this next week, but I want you to understand this, that it'd be really easy for us to think, well, Mary's anticipating a miracle here. I mean, she knows Jesus. She gave birth to him. The Holy Spirit helped her to birth him, right? She knows what the angel of the Lord said. And so she's obviously expecting a miracle. But I'm going to propose to you, and what we're going to see in the case for Christ and finish up next week, is that she wasn't expecting a miracle. It was in the fact that she had been a widow and that she'd been looking to Jesus all along for direction, guidance, and protection. He was her protector and provider because of the man of the house at the time, even though he was her son. It'd be very natural. And so think of it. If Jesus is the one taking care of you as a widow... He, he knows all the answers to every question, right? He's the go-to guy. I don't know how to fix the blender. I know how, you know. Um, he, he's the one that's never wrong. He's never led her in the wrong direction. She knows about his deity. So she goes to him. It's not a matter of Jesus turned the water into wine, probably never crossing her mind. It was just go get some more wine. You're the go-to guy. But we're going to see next week how Jesus very intentionally said woman because what he's about to do for Mary as well as everybody else there is introduce the one who would bring him into the new covenant who would be salvation for even his mother. And he did it not just for her but for them. But we're going to see how Jesus 
how this demonstrates to us how he interacts with us even today. Things that you can't explain about how he's interacting with you now, we'll see some hints of why that is, why he interacts the way he does with you now through this passage. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be in your word and to divide your word with this body of believers. And God, while we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Lord, we don't want anyone to proclaim your name uh, and then uh, do it in an act of embarrassment because you've told us if we're embarrassed in front of you here on earth, you'll be embarrassed of us in front of the Heavenly Father. So if there's someone here today, Lord, that wants to accept you as their Lord and Savior, then while we may have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Lord, they will have to understand that this will be a very public declaration of their faith because you've commanded it to be that way. You never asked us to have a private relationship with you. You asked us to have a personal relationship with you. But as we see in this passage, your ministry is public and that's what you expect of your followers. So this is a big decision, but yet, Lord, the best one they could ever make is decide to be with you for all of eternity to not be separated from the Heavenly Father for all of eternity. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're tired of the running, you're tired of the doing things on your own, and this morning God's Word and the worship and the Holy Spirit, something has pricked your heart and said, God is real and I need Him in my life. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Amen. Heavenly Father, I am thankful, Lord, that today, if in all honesty, everyone here has made that decision already, then Lord, praise your name that we are amongst all believers today. That just means, Lord, we've got some work to do to reach out to the unbelievers and to bring them in, to disciple them, Lord, to, to go out into the highways and byways. And Lord, we pray that through this message next week as we wrap it up, that as we begin to see through your word it illuminates us how you interact with us and why god how that uh how you uh did so in this moment and you'll do the same in our lives god i pray that we'll be receptive to that you'll prepare our hearts for that and that lord next week no one will leave here the same but they'll leave changed in jesus name thank you jesus amen amen love y'all um wednesday remember wednesday night uh 6 30 for church and then Saturday is men's breakfast Bible study. And Tuesday night, women's Bible study. I'm not a lady, so I forget. Sorry. Love y'all. Have a wonderful Sunday.